Today's episode features Lewis Coddington, and it was recorded live on January 9th, 2020. I'm your host, Chad Harrington, and this is the New Canaan Society podcast for the Franklin, Tennessee chapter. The New Canaan Society in Franklin, Tennessee is a group of men who encourage each other in friendship and in faith, and to be better men. Friendship at NCS happens through meetings and chapters all across the country, The Franklin Chapter meets the first and third Thursday morning each month at Puckett's Grocery in downtown Franklin. Before we get to Lewis's talk today, I want to tell you about an online video series and a book study that my company's imprint, Him Publications, released. It's a video course based on Anchors for the Soul, a book by John Mark Hicks, who's a professor at Lipscomb University, and it's designed to help grievers and sufferers Trust God through the storms of life. Walking through and preparing for grief and suffering from the wisdom of a fellow sufferer, John Mark Hicks, is a great way to connect with other men online. And you can do that through this course. You can gather together a group from a couple of guys to a church group. The video course is available to NCS friends for free when you buy the book. So visit himpublications.com slash NCS to learn more and to sign up for this special offer. That's himpublications.com slash NCS. And now for today's episode featuring Lewis Coddington called A Picture of North Korea. Lewis is a missionary who at the time of recording was visiting us in Franklin from Seoul, Korea, where he makes disciples. Yeah, come on. It's 2020. Did anybody know that? I always thought when I was a kid, what's going to happen when I turn, when, when 2020 comes and the only thing I had in my head is I turned 70. And I go, what is that? It's here. And then I was looking up, you know, prognostications of the end of the world and decided not to share any of those with you um, this morning. But um, there's just, there's just a lot going on in our world, a lot going on in our lives, a lot of uh, deep needs that men have and continue to have. Um, the word that has, has been a part of my thoughts in, in, in preparation for being with you in 2020 is the word encouragement, because I know there are many of you who need, uh, uh, always, I mean, continually, but right now at the top of the, at the gate of the new year, uh, a fresh encouragement and, uh, God's not finished with you. Um, and, and even if your life in 2020 ends on this earth, he is not finished with you. This is just the beginning of the beginning. And our life has purpose and our life has meaning. And I, I want you to lay claim uh, to that for yourself in 2020 and not give way to the discouragement and to the voices in your head because I hear them in my head too, Right to the voices in your head that say, this is over, what's my purpose in life? Your purpose is not over as long as you have breath and are getting out of bed in the morning. And if you're struggling with what that purpose is, make it a serious uh, inquiry of your own heart to the Lord, to the Holy Spirit, to say, what is this purpose that you have created me for? One of the One of the scriptures that, uh, comes to mind was um, was so beautiful. Uh, where in the world did that come from? <laughs> what happened? Where's Sally? Uh, 
Okay, so. In, in two weeks, we're going to have these comedians up here sharing something serious about their life, I hope, and it's going to be a great morning. But Paul Aldridge and Denny Brownlee, who are always the, the class clowns, are going to be with us, so just come for that. But, but the scripture, look it up, write it down, is 1 Peter 2, 10, and 11, and it says that you uh, are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, right? And you who were not a people are now the people of the living God. We're going to have a lot of opportunity in 2020 to distinguish ourselves as the body of Christ. And um, even even inside the church, even inside the body of Christ, to show what it really means to to live a life that's that's a, a dedicated follower of Jesus. Uh, I, I keep coming back to this partisan divide that we have, and I, I keep encouraging uh, my brothers to say, "Look, let's be people of the kingdom of God, and let's discern the times that we are in." What is it like the sons of Manasseh who, who understood the times that they were in and not to become more radical partisan, but to become more committed as ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ in a world that is truly, truly hurting. Um, okay, that's my little sermonette. Larry, are you coming? Um, uh, oh, tip. Larry wants me to remind everybody to put the tip on the table before you leave instead of after you leave. Uh, is that right? Okay, nice big tip for the, for the staff today, but let's, let's pray as Larry then comes and is going to introduce our speaker. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the grace that you continue to pour out in our life. We thank you for the fact that you have given us brothers to walk through life with. Lord, I pray for uh, my brothers here this morning who are feeling lonely, feeling uh, dejected or depressed, I pray, Father, that they would have the courage to reach out their hand to someone at the table and say, I need a friend or I need help or do you have time for coffee? Could we talk a little bit more? Um, Father, I pray that we would learn to be with each other and for each other and, and arms around each other as we go out these doors into the community uh, taking with us the grace of God that has been poured abundantly in our hearts. We thank you for the love that you continue to give us. We thank you for the sense of identity that we have uh, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we commit this year to you, and we thank you for your presence here. And it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. First thing I want to say is, if you're not on our email list, I'm going to pass this around. Just write your name clearly, please, because sometimes I can't read what you all write. Uh, but write your name and your email address, and we'll send you an email twice a month. I know some guys are here for the first time. One of the best photographers in the whole world, Robin Hood. Uh, he's from just right down the street. I'm glad you're here. Right there. That's Robin, that's Robin Hood. I've, I've known Robin for about 40 years. He and I published a book together back in 78, was it? 79. Uh, Governor Alexander's uh, The Tennesseans. And he was a photographer for that. When Jesus, just before he left 
the earth. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Teach them all the stuff I've told you and make disciples of them. And for 2,000 years, Christians have gone around the world teaching and preaching and baptizing. Um, the, the, uh, the Apostle Thomas went to India. Paul, of course, you know about his missionary journeys. Matthew went down to Ethiopia. It's said that Andrew went as far north as Ukraine, teaching and preaching and baptizing. And for 2,000 years, as I said, the missionaries have gone around the world making disciples. And today we have the privilege of having Lewis Coddington, who has not only been a missionary, but has a heritage of other family members as missionaries also. And he's going to tell us a little bit about his experiences. And he can tell us whatever he wants. But I'm thinking most recently, he's in Seoul, Korea. He and his wife uh, teaching North Koreans. Lewis? I'm really glad you invited me here, Larry. You know, we're, we're in Korea. We're working with North Korean defectors, and most of the ones we work with are in their teens and early 20s. So we feel like dinosaurs, but this is the first time I've felt young and I don't know how long. So <laughs> I need to get your I need to get your picture to remind me of this. So That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you guys. Um I'm a I'm a missionary and so being a good missionary I brought some prayer letters and prayer cards so it'll really make me feel good if you take one so if you want to make me feel good take one um we've we've been with a literature mission for about 30 years um I want to just tell you the story of two North Korean defectors that we work with in Seoul. They're our students. Um, but let me give you a little bit of background before that. I grew up in Korea. My parents were missionaries there. They went to Korea just before the Korean War. Um, and so as I was growing up, I was very aware of North Korea and communism and that kind of became part of my DNA. So after I got married, I met my wife at Covenant College in Chattanooga. Um, we settled down in Knoxville. Uh, we had a Christian bookstore. And then I remember looking, watching on TV at Christmas 1989 and watching the Berlin Wall come down. And that just really stunned me because all my life I had been aware of communism and it, was, it just seemed to be marching unopposed throughout the whole world. And to suddenly see this change was stunning. I never imagined it would happen. But it also made me realize, you know, all those people that I've been aware of all my life have not freely had the gospel and we should do something about that. We were in Knoxville. I had a Christian bookstore. I was enjoying myself, serving people. But I thought, you know, 
there are a dozen other Christian bookstores distributing God's word here as well. What difference does it make if I'm here when those people haven't heard? So that's what basically um, catapulted us to go overseas. Um, we did a lot of work um, helping to open bookstores in Eastern Europe, Romania, Bulgaria, Hungary, places like that, and then in Central Asia, and then in Russia. We kind of kept moving east. And then we lived seven years in China where we weren't able to open a bookstore, but instead we had an um, English library in our home, and that attracted students. And I was really amazed at how much freedom, you know, we don't think of China as being a very free place, but um, I, for my visa, I had an English teaching job, um, and then on the side, we would just invite university students into our home to study English, and we told them when they came, we're using the Bible as our textbook, and they were fine with that, so we would study the Bible we would gather around our kitchen ta- or our dining room table with Bibles, and it, it was just a wonderful, wonderful time. Those were great years. Um, every now and then, the police would come by and make sure we were indeed doing what our visa told us we were allowed to do, which was to teach English. I remember one time we had a group of students around our dining room table with Bibles open. There was a knock on the door. I looked out the window, and there were three or four policemen there. And I had about one second to decide what I was going to do about that. <laughs> I really didn't have a choice, so I just invited them in. And they looked around. They said, okay, you're, you're teaching English. Okay, you got English books. All right, good, thanks, goodbye. And they left, and I kind of, whoo, boy. <laughs> But I, I was really amazed at how much freedom we had um, with my official job of teaching at an English school. There were about seven or 8,000 students, and there were about 100 Chinese English teachers at that school, and then there were one or two foreigners like me. So once a week, I would teach the Chinese teachers English. Their English was pretty bad, actually. I mean, they knew grammar probably better than I did, but in terms of speaking, it wasn't too great. But <clears throat> one of the things I enjoy doing is bringing books from our English library, and I would set them on my desk, and if a teacher gave a presentation in English, I would say, okay, now you can choose a book to take, and, and that was really exciting to them to have a, a book. And one, one class, um, the headmaster was sitting right here on the front row, right in front of me, but I, I brought a bunch of books, and then I had a stack of Bibles. And uh, I don't know what I was thinking. I must have been crazy. But anyway, I did that. And uh, one student came up after they made a presentation. They picked up a book, and it said New York Times bestseller on it. And I held it up. I said, do you, do you all know what that means when a book says New York Times bestseller? And they said, no. I said, well, if I would write a book and get that on it, I would really, you know, I would have arrived. I would be famous. Um, but I said, there's one book that has never been on the New York Times bestseller list, but Every year it outsells all the books on the New York Times bestseller list. Do you know what book that is? And they were silent. Finally, one person raised their hand. Uh, Harry Potter. (laughs) 
So at least they knew Harry Potter. But um, anyway, I held up a Bible and I said, if you really want to understand English, if you want to understand Western civilization, if you want to understand our laws, our idioms, our names, everything about us and about English, you need to read this book. And the headmaster was sitting right here. And uh, after class, they all swarmed up and they just took them all. And I was stunned. I still remember that moment thinking, man, I could not do this in America. Somebody would get upset. But I can do this in China. And I, I was just stunned, you know, that, that I could actually do that. And um, we lived in a, in a gated community, not quite the same in China as what we think of as gated communities here. But there was a guard, so if somebody would come in to visit somebody in our neighborhood, they would have to tell the guard why they were coming. <clears throat> and students would sometimes come, they would come in, tell the guard, we're, we're coming to study the Bible with the foreigners, so they knew very well what we were doing. We were known as the foreigners who studied the Bible with students. So I, I was, those were great years. I was amazed at how much freedom we had. Sometimes I would just um, take Bibles with me and just go out on the street looking for people. I would, I would try to look for tourists, which um, in China was... Um, Chinese people who were pretty well-dressed and kind of looked like tourists, you know, instead of the local just riffraff, whatever. <laughs> One time we were in a, in a tourist town, and I saw this young couple pretty nicely dressed, and I went up to them and started chatting. It turned out they were um, engineering students from one of the largest cities in China. And I started chatting, then I... Um, asked them if they had ever seen a Bible, and they had never seen a Bible before. They had never even heard of the Bible. And I thought, wow, in today's day and age, educated engineering students from a large city in China that never heard of the Bible. And I gave them one, and then I, I went on down the street. And right after that, the, the guy ran after me. And he was so excited, he wanted to get a picture together. It kind of reminded me when one of the lepers ran after Jesus, you know. And it was just such a moving experience to me to, to think of what a privilege it was to give a Bible to someone who, who didn't even know it existed, you know. It was amazing. Well, dur those were wonderful years in China. And during those years, um, I'm not sure what got us into it, but we started reading books about North Korea and about people who escaped from North Korea. And that really started to burden us and weigh on our hearts. Um, <clears throat> so after seven years... Um, at, at, as you may know, in China, the last couple of years, it's, the security's gotten a lot tougher. A lot of our friends have been kicked out of China. We might have by this time, but we left right about that time, and we decided we were going to try to do something with North Koreans for the last couple of years before we retired. Um, we looked into maybe working with them up along the North Korean-Chinese border because that's where they come out and a lot of them are up there. But I discovered when I went to investigate that the security is just extremely tight up there, as you can imagine. So any foreigner is very much 
under suspicion there, and we thought, well, that, that just probably won't work. We also actually applied to teach in North Korea, in Pyongyang, and we were accepted by a university there, but we weren't able to get a visa, so that didn't work either. On hindsight, it's probably a relief that we didn't get a visa. Um, so the third option we looked at was actually moving to South Korea, where there are a lot of North Korean defectors. There are more than 30,000 that live in South Korea. And so that's what we did. Two years ago, we moved to Seoul. Seoul is a big international city. When I was growing up in Korea 45 or 50 years ago, Korea was one of the poorest countries in the world. Most people lived in mud huts. Um, Now, it's just mind-blowing the change it's it's like new york or tokyo or whatever it's very sophisticated completely different country than when i was growing up but there are a lot of north koreans who come out of north korea they come into china Um, now because of the relationship between china and north korea if they're caught in china they're sent back to north korea And that will either mean jail or concentration camp or worse um, for their whole family. So even when they get out of North Korea, if they're in China, they're living in great fear, a little bit like the Jews in World War II in Europe. That's kind of how they are. So as quickly as they can, they try to get out of China. And thankfully, there are people in China, mostly South Korean Christians who try to link up with them and then a little bit like the Underground Railroad, they try to help them escape and they tend to go down into Southeast Asia to Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam. There they can go into a South Korean embassy and eventually get to South Korea. They can't do that in China because the Chinese guard the South Korean embassy. So they're not able to do that in China. They have to make the long journey down to the south. Um, So I want to tell you about two of the um, students that we know that have come to Korea We are volunteer teaching at um, three schools for North Koreans in Seoul. There are about 10 or more schools for North Koreans, just for North Koreans in Seoul. There are a lot of North Korean defectors there, and we volunteer at three of them. Um, And it's, it's very different from when we were in China. When we were in China, the Chinese, um, you know, because of their government, they did not know much about spiritual things. And their interest in English was very much awakening. So they were just very responsive, very hungry for spiritual things. And it was a wonderful experience, a wonderful time to be there because they just soaked things up. Uh, with the North Koreans, it's very different. They are like Holocaust survivors. They've been lied to by their government all their lives. They come out. Their government tells them that the world envies North Korea, that we're the best. Everybody else is miserable, and we're the best. They get out, and suddenly their eyes are open. So they have a tremendous distrust in authority 
and people in control. So that's, when we start teaching them, they don't know what our agenda is. They're wondering, and in, they've been told all their lives that Americans are the worst, you know, the scum of the earth. And so there are, there are huge hurdles. They tend to have trauma. So it's, it's much more challenging and difficult than it was reaching the Chinese. But, it, but it, at the same time, it's a great privilege. Um, one of the difficult things also is that most of the people today coming out of North Korea are women. Um, I'm not entirely sure why that is. Partly it's because they are... Um, they are offered jobs. If you come to China, you'll get a job. You know, everybody in North Korea is barely surviving at best, you know, other than the very upper crust. And so to, to find out they can get a job in China and send money back to their family, that sounds like a good deal. But most of the women who come out are immediately captured and trafficked. They're either sold into prostitution or their soul to be a wife to a Chinese man. Thanks to the one-child policy, there's a huge imbalance between men and women in China. In Asia, everybody wants to have a son, so a lot of uh, girl, girls are aborted, tragically, and so there aren't enough women for men of the age growing up. And so North Koreans are one source of wives for Chinese men, sadly. That's the situation. And some of the students we have have been trafficked, and they have tremendous trauma. Um, One of our students, a very sweet girl, she has a two-year-old daughter in China because she was sold to a Chinese man. And when when she first told us the story, I thought, how in the world could you leave your little child in China and leave and come to South Korea? I just didn't understand that somebody could actually leave their child. But we have to remember that even though she was married to a Chinese man, she was under constant fear of being captured and sent back to North Korea, which would have been you know, a virtual death sentence or prison sentence to, their, to her whole extended family. So they live in constant fear even once they've gotten out of North Korea. And so some of them, like this girl, will escape to South Korea and then they hope that one day they'll be able to get their daughter back. And that's, that's the case of this um, girl that we know. Um, but let me tell you the story about two guys um, one of them's named Brian, their English name. One of them's named Eugene. If you met them, you wouldn't, you wouldn't suspect anything different about them. They just look like nice young men. Um, in South Korea, they're pretty much invisible because they look like the South Koreans. They look well-adjusted. Um, you know, they have education. Um, but they do have a lot of trauma and baggage in their lives, as you can imagine. Um, this, one, this one guy that was my student named Brian, he was uh, from a pretty well-to-do family in Pyongyang. If you live in Pyongyang, the capital, 
you already are pretty elite because only favored people can live in Pyongyang. So his family lived there. Um, he had an older brother, and one day he, his father and mother were both arrested and, and sent to prison. His father was arrested because he had an illegal business of importing from China. That, that's the way a lot of people survive is by doing business with China, but it's illegal. Uh, so his father was sentenced to two years in prison. His mother was arrested, and she had on her person a letter addressed to somebody in South Korea. I don't know if she was passing that on for a friend. I don't remember the details, but that got her a 10-year prison sentence just for having this letter. So her parents were both, their parents were both sent to prison. So Brian and his older brother were out on the street. They were around 10 or 12 years old. And the government took everything, took their house, took everything. They had nothing. They were left as orphans on the street. And eventually they were put into a home for kids like this without parents. And it was when they were there that Brian's eyes were opened to the fact that the government had been lying to them. And the reason why is because all their lives growing up, they were told that the dear leader loved them and would always take care of them. But they were put into a room, a small room, that was just wall-to-wall kids with one little window. It was dark in there. They had to work all day long. I don't know how many hours, 12 or more hours. And they were given one rice ball a day, and that was it. And he said pretty much every day some of them would die, either from starvation or exhaustion or whatever. And when they got there, they realized... Our government has not been telling us the truth. Somehow they managed to escape out that window. I don't quite know how they did it, but he and his brother got out. And eventually they managed to find their father when he was released from prison. Now their father had to take care of the sons, his two sons, but he also had to earn a living. I think he, I think he went back to trading with China, but he also married another lady because he needed somebody to look after his kids. So their mother was still in prison and his, their father married somebody else. Um, Sometime later, Brian was with a friend, and they watched a DVD. Um, This was illegal, of course. It was pirated. Um, But it was a DVD of the World Cup soccer championship. And when he saw that, when he 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 saw the Australian team playing, and when he saw the Australian team playing... His response was, I got to get out of here. I don't want my kids growing up here. And do you know why that was his response? Because until that time, he thought everybody in the world spoke Korean. That's how limited his knowledge was. He didn't realize there were other countries out there. And so he saw the Australian team and he realized 
this whole thing is a bunch of baloney. I don't want my kids growing up here. And, and so just watching a soccer game is what um, propelled him to get out. So he was able to leave. He left his older son behind, his older brother behind in Korea because the older brother has the responsibility to look after his father when his father's old. So he left. He came by himself to South Korea, and his family is still there. I think his mother is now in China. But, um, you know, it it just gives you an idea of the desperation they feel to be willing to cut all ties with their family, to leave their homeland. That just gives you... You know, if you can imagine doing that, he he probably will never see his family again. You know, so it's a huge, a huge cost and a huge decision. But that's how they feel given how they've grown up and given what they've been told. Um, got a few more minutes. Let me tell you about Eugene. Eugene is a wonderful guy. He's he's one of our students. He's now married to a North Korean girl that he met in Seoul, and they're expecting their second child. Just a just a great, humble guy. Um, you wouldn't imagine or expect anything about his background if you met him. But Eugene also was a, a pretty elite person living in Pyongyang. The reason why he was kind of in the elite is that he had a computer uh, degree, at university, and because of that degree, he was allowed to teach outside of North Korea. Or sorry, he was allowed to work outside of North Korea. So he and a group of guys were allowed to go to China and work for six months. That was a huge privilege that generally they're never allowed to do. So he was with a group of North Koreans in China. And they're all kind of watching each other. You know, part of their job is just to spy on each other and make sure nobody steps out of line. So he was with this group. He started getting online. And I I don't know, he didn't tell me exactly what they were doing, but I suspect they're trying to spy on Americans and South Koreans because he said a lot of his contacts were actually with Americans and South Koreans. And they would sleep during the day they would work at night when, you know, it's daytime in America. And I'm not sure exactly what they did, but I can only imagine that they were trying to gather um, information for the North Korean government. But he said when he, when he started doing this, he began connecting with Americans and South Koreans, and he began to realize something is not right here. <clears throat> And again, you know, like Brian, he, um, Eugene, he had a, he had his family in North Korea. Everything was in North Korea. Um, but he came to a point where, where he had to make a decision. Am am I going to go back or am I going to abandon all this? And he started a conversation with a South Korean, and he first introduced himself as a lady. He said, you know, I'm a, I'm a lady, and they were chatting. And finally, he got to the point where he felt like he could trust this guy, and he said, really, I'm a North Korean. Would you be able to help me escape? And so this guy, thankfully, was willing to help him. 
and got him in touch with people who um, helped North Korean defectors. So he was with his co-workers in their apartment, and he arranged with with some of these um, underground railroad people um, to have a car come to pick him up. And what he did is um, when his when his boss was on the phone and a little bit distracted, he said to his boss, oh, I, um, my towel was hung over the balcony and it fell down, so I need to run outside and pick it up. And his boss said, okay, sure, go ahead, come right back. And he disappeared. Um, so he was picked up by these people that were helping him escape. But if you think about it, you know, in that one moment, he has said goodbye to his whole family probably forever. He has said goodbye to his homeland. You know, it's amazing when you think about the pressure and the circumstances that would push anybody to that situation. It's hard, it's hard for me to imagine any of us saying, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna leave my family today never to see them again. And that's the situation he was in. Um, when he first got picked up with his people, he was put in a room for several weeks. They couldn't go out. They couldn't do anything while arrangements were being made for them to be sent down to Southeast Asia. And while he was in this room for three weeks, thankfully, South Korean Christians provide Bibles for them. He read through the Bible five times. In three weeks. That kind of puts us to shame, doesn't it? (laughs) Um, So he, you know, for the first time in his life, he was introduced to the Bible. Well, later on, he was in a restaurant with a group of probably 10 or 12 of these defectors, and they were making last minute um, arrangements to escape to Southeast Asia. And while they were there, he got up and went to the bathroom. And he was gone for a couple of minutes. When he came back out, nobody was there. They were all gone. And he found out from the people in the restaurant that the police had been tipped off. They came in and arrested everybody. And they were all gone. And he said, at that moment, that's when I started to believe in God. I realized God was looking after me and saved me. Um, but he was in a tight spot. Now he had no connections. He had no money. He was basically just on the street. This was in the winter time. It was freezing cold. Um, for a couple of days, he was out on the street, and he just didn't know what to do. He had one phone number on a piece of paper um, of one of these, um, we call them brokers, people that help the defectors. That was all he had, but he just didn't know what to do. And he was freezing to death. He was getting more and more hungry. And finally, he decided, if I'm going to survive, i got to get help. And so he decided he would stand by the side of the road. And as people walked by, he would whisper. Now, this was in China. He would whisper in Korean, uh, you know, hey. um," And hopefully, somebody would recognize his Korean and hopefully they would help him rather than turning him in and getting a reward from the Chinese government. And that's exactly what happened. Somebody helped him. By the time they brought a car and got help, he was so weak they had to pick him up and put him into the car. 
and he was saved and eventually came to South Korea. So that's his story. Um, but we've heard so many stories like that. It just, it's unbelievable, really. It's unbelievable. Um, they're really like Holocaust survivors. Um, but I just want to leave you with one request, really, um, in sharing this with you. You know, we hear a lot about North Korea and the news, and probably none of us are big fans of North Korea, but I just want you to remember that there are people there that God loves and wants to save, and they are living in hell, really. You know, North Korea is like a, a big prison camp, basically, is what it is. And it's, it's just horrible, the stories we've told. So I would just ask you all to pray. Let's pray for these people. Um, let's pray that somehow God's light will reach those people, whether it's through people going in, whether it's through a collapse of the regime, which I would love to see happen, whether it's some other way. Um, North Korea is just one small country. Of course, there are many other places with needs, but um, it's it's the folks we work with, and we have a real burden for them. Um, but let's just pray that somehow God's light would get into North Korea more and more to these people, because so many of them, they don't know that there's a God that loves them, you know, and they are living in hell, and they're going to hell. You know, that's... Um, you can't get much of a worse situation than that. So, so I, I would just challenge you and ask you to pray, pray for the North Koreans. Thank you so much. Uh, Steve Young, do you have a response that you would care to make and a prayer to offer for Lewis? Could you come? My gentle brother, putting him on the spot. <laughs> you may not know, but Steve's father was my Bible teacher in college. Uh, so. <laughs> it's on my heart. Take it away. Okay. Close it up. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to pray. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Sovereign God, we thank you so much for your plan of salvation. We thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to this sinful world so that uh, you can change hearts and give spiritual life to people and and uh, be able to come to Jesus for salvation. So we just praise you and thank you for your mercy and grace. And uh, we've just heard the story of the suffering people in North Korea. And uh, we ask that um, your spirit... <clears throat> would truly work in that land. And uh, the Berlin walls fell down. Soviet Union came apart, and you can do anything and do miracles. And uh, it'd be great if the uh, government of North Korea would fall apart and give freedom to the people to have uh, freedom of religion and uh, be able to read the Bible and freely. And so we just ask that... Uh, the power of the Spirit would uh, overcome that land and, and that uh, there'd be more freedom. And we pray for the North Koreans who do escape, that uh, they would be able to 
uh, meet Christians and uh, come to know Christ as their Savior as well. And thank you for the work that the Coddingtons are doing and uh, pray that you will continue to bless them and use them for your honor and glory. And we just uh, praise you and thank you so much that uh, we have um, such a great life here in America. But uh, please help us not to take this for granted, but to be thankful. And uh, we pray that um, as the countries uh, look to America in many different ways, that uh, somehow uh, many people will see the impact of of how uh, you have blessed this land and and they would want to read the Bible and they would be able to come to Christ as well. So thank you for the testimony that we've heard and we just pray for your continual blessing upon the work there in South Korea amongst the North Koreans and, and we praise you that there's so many uh, wonderful Christians amongst the Korean people, even American Koreans, uh, going as missionaries to other countries of the world. So we thank you for our Korean brothers and sisters, and we pray you will continue to bless them and use them for your honor and glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That was Lewis Coddington, and we hope you enjoyed his talk called A Picture of North Korea. Make sure to check out the video course mentioned at the beginning of this episode by John Mark Hicks, and sign up a group of guys you know to go through his material about grief and suffering, go to himpublications.com slash NCS. Until next time.